Yeah, it's good to be here again. Yeah. Although I have to tell you, like the email I sent you this last week, it was God's timing that Fred speak last week. He had a message for our hearts, and uh, it was one that uh, spoke to my heart. I know it spoke to many others. I sent out the email, and some of you sent me emails back saying, yeah, you know, that, uh, that really spoke to my heart. And, you know, we have a tendency to be afraid, don't we? You know, it seems like something happened. We aren't, we aren't sure what's going on, and, and we get afraid. We start thinking, oh, you know, well, something bad's going to happen, and, you know, I tell you, the, the Christian life is an adventure. It really is. And, uh, and adventures have to have an unknown element to it for it to be an adventure. And um, so um, I'm excited. Uh, I'm just really excited about what God's doing here at Crossway. And um, I'm glad to be a part of it. Two weeks ago, last time I spoke, we talked about whose church is it? So just to make sure you haven't forgotten, whose church is it? God's church. Okay. Not mine, not yours. It is God's church. So good. Today we want to look at, at what is the church? I'm going to get theological on you today. Okay. And, and I know for some of you, that's going to be difficult um, because you, your thinking is skip the theology, get to the practical stuff, you know. Uh, what, what is it we're supposed to do? But we can't know what we're supposed to do until we know what we're supposed to be. So if, if this part is difficult for you, hang in there, okay? Put a little extra effort into it today. Take notes or something, um, because next week we're going to get into, okay, what does it look like? What are we going to do? Ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. I have theology books, and they have devoted great big passages in there to look at the study of ecclesiology. Last time I spoke, we looked at, and it comes from the word ecclesia, and I looked, we looked at that word, and we saw that the word ecclesia is a, a group that's gathered together for a purpose. Now, we saw it, it, it's a word that was used of a mob in, in Ephesus. It was a word that was used of the children of Israel wandering you know, in the wilderness for 40 years. They were a called-out group. And the word itself is a non-technical word. Now, what that means is, if you're going to define it, you have to look at the context. The context will define the meaning of the word. One thing we can say for certain, though, the word ecclesia never refers to a building. It never refers to a physical building. Not a synagogue, not a temple, not a chapel, not a tabernacle. Any other place in Scripture is ever called the ecclesia, the church. In fact, our English word church comes from the German, Kirk, which is the word that they use to, to describe the building. Well, there are two main categories, 
in this study of ecclesiology, and that one is the local church, and one is what's called the universal or invisible church. So I want us to look to begin with at the local church. What does the Bible say about the local church? Well, in order for it to be an ecclesia, a church, three things have to be there. Number one is there must be people. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, yeah, there is no gathering of people without people. So there, there has to be people. Uh, number two is that the people must gather together. Uh, individuals, Christians spread around, are not a local church. Okay, If it's not gathered together, it's not an ecclesia. Now, this has some practical results. Nobody can say, I am a member of the gathering, but I don't gather with them. Okay, that That is a contradictory statement. It's like being invited to a party, and someone says, I'm having a gathering at my house tomorrow. I'd like you to come. You say, sure, I'll be a part of your gathering, but I'm not coming. Huh? You know, that, 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 that doesn't make sense. A church is not an abstract group of disconnected people, but rather it is a group of people that assemble together to be the church. Now, I've got a quiz question for you. I want you to work on all week. Okay? Okay. What is it the church can't do until it is gathered together? I want you to think about that over the week. Okay? And you'll come back and maybe I'll ask you for your answers. Okay? What is it a church can't do until it is gathered together? In other words, when is a church not a church, because it has to be gathered together to be the church, a local church. Here's something interesting. There is no mention of local church membership in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying church membership is bad. In fact, there's no mention of boards, committees, congregational meetings, or a lot of other things in the Bible. It doesn't make them bad. But there is no mention of local church membership. Now, every once in a while, I run into somebody, and they say, local church membership is biblical. I go, okay, what verse were you thinking of? Well, well, well there's not a verse, actually, there. You know. But the concept is biblical. Okay, well, what's the concept? Well, the concept is, you know, gathering and uh, responsibility and, uh, you know, and, and commitment. And, yeah, those are all biblical, okay? But they don't necessarily have to be tied together with church membership. And um, I think from my experience in churches over past 70 years, churches tend to make church membership whatever they want church membership to be. You know, for, for some churches, 
Church membership is the same as getting saved. You can't go to heaven unless you're a member. Well, we'd categorically say, oh, no, you can't do that. You know, and other churches would say, well, you're not really a committed believer unless you're a, a member of the church. And I've had enough experience to know that one's not right either. It would be pretty difficult to function as a group, though, without some form of organization. We need we need something there. So, you know, that could be what church membership is, if that is what we decide we want church membership to be. But the important point here is an assembly is not the assembly when it's not assembled. That's profound, isn't it? Okay. An assembly is not an assembly if it isn't assembled together. So people saying, oh, you know, I'm a part of XYZ church, but I never come. No, that can't, that, that doesn't compute. Okay. It has to be an assembly. The third thing about why or what has to happen in order for there to be a church is there must be a common purpose for the gathering for it to be an ecclesia. Uh, Ecclesia was the very common Greek word back in Bible times. We spoke Greek for a gathering of people. Most commonly it was used, though, in reference to an assembly of voting citizens of a city or a city council. So if you lived back then and you walked in the city and you didn't know anything, you didn't know your way around, and you walk up to a stranger and you say, where is your local ecclesia? Most likely you would be directed to a government building rather than a a religious gathering. But in the Bible, the the earliest uh, use of, of of a local assembly comes from the letters of Paul. And I, we can only presume, but I, it makes sense to me, that the Apostle Paul uh, taught the believers to think of themselves as an ecclesia, as a group of people gathered together for a certain purpose. Over in Galatians chapter 1, let's go over there. Galatians 1, 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches of Galatia, to the ecclesias of Galatia, to the local assemblies of Galatia, he's talking about. So that is one sense in which the word ecclesia is used in the Bible. We're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning looking at the other. And the other is that the ecclesia of God, the church of God, is a universal or invisible church. The universal church consists of everyone, everywhere, who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The universal church consists of everyone everywhere who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I can say that I belong to the same church as every Christian out there today. Okay? 
I am a part of the same church of every believer that I meet. There's no limits. There's no time. There's no certain location. But the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit places us into the universal church. And this is the, the idea that in Scripture, especially in the book of Ephesians, um, uses the most when he uses the word church, of this universal church. By the way, the book of Ephesians should be a mandatory book for every believer to study if you want to know about the church. And I think it only took me, what, maybe two years, two years to preach through that? Yeah, okay. Um, because it's so critical in understanding the church. In, in, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul gives great attention to eschatology. He, he answers the question, what is the church? And it's far beyond just Christians getting together at one location at one time with one purpose. In fact, this church has never, ever met together. Universal Church. The first meeting of the Universal Church is going to be when we meet the Lord in the air. And we'll all, the first time, the whole Universal Church will gather together. Now, to help us, uh, us finite people with limited mental capabilities to understand the concept of the church, the Holy Spirit inspired uh, the writers of Scripture to use different symbols, metaphors, similes, so that we could kind of grasp, well, what is this invisible church? What, what, what is it supposed to, to be? And so I want us to look uh, today at some of these scriptures that, that use these symbols or metaphors, similes, uh, to, to, to help us get a better idea of, of, of what it looks like. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, there are several things in this passage that kind of give us an idea symbolically of what the church is supposed to be. First of all, it says here that we are fellow citizens with God's people. Every believer on earth, regardless of what nation they live in, is a citizen with every other believer as God's people. In Philippians 3.20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it uses the concept of citizenship, and we're familiar with citizenship. We're, you know, citizens of a country. We understand, you know, responsibilities and obligations. Well, our home country, our homeland is heaven. That is primarily our nation. 
The, the next thing it says here is that uh, we are members of his household. Okay? What's a household? Well, a household is a family. Okay? Uh, we call each other brother and sister. We're part of the same family. I'm sure you've heard of the saying, blood is thicker than water, right? That, that means we have a, a greater obligation, responsibility with family than, than with those non-family. And that's exactly what Galatians 6.10 says. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Okay, we're, we're part of a family together. And family looks out for family. I remember being taught that as a kid. Okay, so we have a special obligation to believers because uh, of the fact that we're all in the same family. It talks here about we are a building. Now, it doesn't, it's not talking about a physical building. Okay, he's using this metaphor, we are a building. Now, a building is more than the sum of its parts. Okay, you can have all the supplies for building a house and stack them all together in the middle of a lot, and you don't have a building. You got the parts for a building. All the parts have to be put in the right spot in order for it to be a building. And I kind of like that metaphor. I think that's kind of cool. All the parts have to be in the right spot. Um, when I was working with the transit agency, we had a saying that uh, in order for things to work well, all the people had to be in the right seats on the bus. Okay, And the idea was that you know, if you're part of an organization, but you're not sitting in the right seat, you're not doing the right thing, then the organization flounders. Well, it's the same with a building. You know, you know, put the window in the foundation. You know, it's got a particular spot. It has to be. And so that idea that's being conveyed here is all the people in the right spot doing what they're supposed to be doing. The next thing it says here in this passage is that, that the church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now we know from 1 Corinthians 6.19 that says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. So individually as believers, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But collectively, as the universal church, the church also is that dwelling place of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within the believers. So since the church is made up of people who have the Holy Spirit living in them, the universal church becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The next thing in the passage, it says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, what do pillars do? Okay, well, pillars are supports. Okay, they're, they're the load-bearing support for a, for a building. <clears throat> I remember when I was young, uh, uh, 
I got a wrong idea somewhere or another. Uh, and uh, someone said, well, you know, the, 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 the elders of the church, they're the pillars of the church. They, they, they hold up the church. Well, I interpreted hold up differently from holding up. Okay, uh, and I thought, oh, well, you know, all these elders are holding up the church. Uh, I, I was a little confused there. <clears throat> Just so you're not confused, it's the idea of support. The church supports truth. It holds up truth, God's truth, doctrine, theology. I know there are churches today who say, oh, we don't, we don't like doctrine. We don't like theology. We don't want to spend our time, you know, with that. But, you know, that is one of the purposes of the church is to support theology. In Galatians 2.9 says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So James, Cephas, John, these were individuals that were held up as, as pillars, supporting strongly the truth. And they're the ones then who sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. Those are all kind of metaphors of the church. But the most common one uh, in Scripture is the concept of the church as the body of Christ. Uh, Paul uses this terminology more than any other. Let, let me just read through four Scripture passages here real quickly. In Ephesians 4.11 says, so Christ, gave himself, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So all these gifted individuals given to the church so that the body of Christ can be built up. Ephesians 4.15 says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Colossians 1.15-20 The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or earth, or on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Over and over again, this idea is used, is that the church is the body of Christ. I had a traumatic experience when I was about eight years old. 
where I saw a body without a head. And what happened, I'm not going to be gory. Um, what happened, I was at my great-grandmother's house. And um, they were talking about dinner. And they decided they were going to have chicken for dinner. And um, great-grandma said, well, I'll go get a chicken. And I said, I'll go with you. Figuring we're going to the store and I might get some candy, you know, out of the deal. Well, we did not go to the store. We went out back to the chicken coop. And she grabbed a hatchet on the way out, went out there, caught a chicken, chased it for quite a while through the yard, cut off its head and let it go. And that headless chicken ran around that chicken yard back and forth several times and finally just plopped over dead. I was in shock. I did not know where chickens came from. <laughs> as far as I knew, they came from the store. And, and I've often thought of that. Christ is the head of the church and we're the body. And what happens when the head gets severed from the body? The body runs around in all sorts of directions and does nothing and flops over, you know? Christ is the head, we're the body. Lately, I've been picking on the Corinthians. You know, I think I've mentioned the Corinthians in about every last four sermons. Um, the, the, the church at Corinth was made up of very immature Christians. And uh, Paul really wanted them to understand the church. And, and he uses this image of the human body. Um, You've got to remember, Paul wasn't in Corinth very long. You know, he left to go on to plant another church somewhere else. And, you know, they didn't have Bibles back then. They didn't have mature Christians to lead them. They didn't have Christian tapes and books and DVDs and CDs and websites and all of that. So, so when Paul left, they had a lot of crazy ideas as to what the church was. And so when Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, he, he wrote to them and, and partially to explain what is the church. He uses this idea of the body. And, and then he kind of goes into detail. I, I want to read big, long passage for you. Okay? Hang in there. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. By the way, this is the passage Don Creech read for us uh, communion a few weeks ago. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed 
the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Just as a body needs a head to function correctly, a head needs a body. Just as we need Christ to function as a church, Christ needs the church to do its function on earth today. It's sad to see people who have a disease where the body is no longer under control. You know, I think of like Parkinson's and MS and some of these things. You know, what we are the body of Christ. And as we next week, Lord willing, look at what it is we're supposed to be doing, we need to understand that it's God who puts the parts where he wants them. It's not up to us to decide what it is that God is going to do with us. He's the one who makes the choice. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouth. We are his ears. These are all things that that we do. Did you ever ponder? I, I ponder a lot. Okay. Why didn't God just write everything out in the sky so everybody could read it? Everybody would know, you know, the plan of salvation, you know, just write it out in the sky. And, you know, God didn't choose to do that. Instead, he chose to pick us. Okay. He chose to pick us to make us part of his body. Okay. To do his work, his function on earth. And again, next week, we'll start looking at what that is. Let's pray. Father, my sermon has been very theological and I appreciate the fact that people stayed with me and that's good. But Father, we need to know who we are. We need to know what it is that you have called the church to be, whether it be a local church or the universal church, whatever it is, Lord. If if we get off wrong there, we're, we're, we're not going to we're not going to do good. 
So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are all members together of your church, the body of Christ. And Father, may we treat each other with respect as we would our own body. May we strengthen the weaker parts as we would our own body. And Father, when one part of the body is honored, the whole body is honored, may we all rejoice together. Thank you for your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.